This is the Bobcats, a Bob Dylan fan podcast. You know, admiring those type of heroes, Robin Hood, Jesse James, you know, the person who always uh, uh, kicked against the oppression. I think what, what I intend to do is just show the individualism of that certain type of breed or certain type of uh, person that would, uh, that must do that. Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to the Bobcats, the podcast where Bob Dylan fans talk about their Bob Dylan fandom. I'm your host, Matt Steichen. I launched this podcast a couple months ago with the goal of sharing the stories of a variety of Dylan fans, some of my friends, some fans I've met briefly over the years at concerts, and some I've never met before. So far, I've had guests from the first two categories, but today I welcome my first guest from the online fan community. He's seen Bob live about 25 times going back to 1994. And I know him from Twitter, where he can be found at Matt Simo, S-I-M-O. And then the number nine, Matt Simonson. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. I really appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Now, we we haven't met before, like I said, and we don't really know each other other than on Twitter. <laughs> but we do have a lot of weird things in common, some of which I just found out as I was preparing for this episode. In addition to both being Matt S's and both being huge Bob Dylan fans, we both grew up in small towns in Northwest Iowa, and we both now live in Minnesota. So uh, I feel like as we talk here, we might discover even more things we have in common. So I'm excited uh, to talk to you today. Yeah, it is kind of a small world as we found out. So I, I, originally, I thought it was just the Matt S from Minnesota connection, but uh, looks like it goes deeper than that. Absolutely. So yeah, my theory is, and we'll see if this bears out that because we come from uh, the same places, we might have similar perspectives and experiences when it comes to uh, learning Bob's music and why we love it. So um, I often talk about the cultural isolation. I felt like I grew up in back in Iowa in the late eighties and early nineties. Uh, and that I was the only kid in class that didn't listen to either twangy country music or crappy eighties rock music, pour some sugar on me, that kind of stuff. <laughs> but my saving grace so to speak, was that I had an older brother that was about your age that listened to what I considered to be good music. And so I listened to that music as well. Uh, So what was the music landscape like uh, that you grew up in 20 miles down the road from where I grew up? Yeah, I'm a few years older than you. So, um, you know, when I when I first remember listening to music that I liked on the radio, uh, it was the Born in the USA album by Bruce Springsteen. I was either nine or 10 uh, when that hit the airwaves. And I really loved that music. And it seemed like, you know, some of the popular 80s music was really cool for a kid that was, you know, 10, 11, 12, just getting into it. And then the landscape changed a little bit. It seemed to fork into either Smells Like Teen Spirit or Ice Ice Baby or Baby Got Back. Those were the songs that filled the airwaves in the high school uh, when I was there. And it, it just wasn't my jam. And uh, I felt like I was a little lost in the wilderness looking for music I could connect to. You know, here in Northwest Iowa reference, you know, most kids start listening to KG95 when they grow up out yep, of Sioux City, yep. you know, and then you get a little, little edgier and you listen to Z98 to hear some of the classic rock stuff. So I was kind of, kind of in that zone. And 
I liked oldies and, 104 myself. <laughs> I always liked the oldies too. My parents listened to a lot of uh, 50s music growing up, which uh, I always adored. So, um, but it wasn't really until I heard uh, like a Rolling Stone on Z98 that I I just knew I'd found the music I'd been looking for that I didn't even know I was looking for, but it found me. Yeah, you were uh, on Pod Dylan, and that's another reason that I wanted to have you as a guest because I thought you were such a good guest on that show, and uh, you shared with Rob your story of hearing like a Rolling Stone for the first time. And you said well, that was in 1993. So having been listening to stuff that was on KG 95, that was mostly a modern music station. So what do you think it was about it at the time that's that struck you in a way that other music didn't, I mean, other than it being the best song of the 20th century. Yeah. Well, I, the best song anybody's ever done, I think, but uh, I, for me personally, it hit me at just the right time. Uh, it was when I was getting ready to leave home and getting ready to move from a, a smaller town to the, to the larger world with the common uncertainties that everybody has when they leave home. What am I going to do with my life? How am I going to meet people? You know, how am I expected to earn a living? And, you know, uh, with, with perspective and looking back, you realize that those uh, fears were surmountable, but at the time, you know, they're very, uh, very scary. And the song just struck me uh, just, um, you know, how does it feel? You know, and I was feeling it at the time. It was, I was insecure. I was scared. I was nervous, you know, to be without a home, no direction home, a complete unknown going out in the world. I mean, it just, it was like it was written for me in the moment. And it just, it just came through the stereo and just into my core. And uh, it was, it was what I was feeling and that couldn't um, translate into words. And it just was the most powerful uh, moment I've ever had with music. And, uh, and the, the beautiful thing about the song is I get that feeling every time I hear it. It's still so fresh. It never gets old. It never feels dated. It feels as crisp and fresh um, every time I listen to it as it did the first time. Yeah, I really feel that way about, I would say, all 10 songs on that Greatest Hits Volume 1. That music just sounds so timeless and so important mm -hmm. and so ambitious. I remember my brother had that CD and I was eight or nine. And even then I was, I, it struck me like one guy wrote all these songs and he sings in so many different voices. And in one song, he could be singing some about something so powerful, like blown in the wind. But then he also had the, the poetic of Mr. Tambourine Man and the fast rock and roll blues of Subterranean mm -hmm. Homesick Blues. And he also had Positively Fourth Street where he sounded so angry. And it's like, wow, this guy just, he has so many different sides. I can't believe one guy does all this stuff. And then, you know, I, you know, we had cable and, you know, there's not that many in things to influence a kid growing up there other than what's on the radio and what's on cable because it was pre-internet. And so if you turned on VH1 or read Rolling Stone magazine, uh, or, you know, listen to Tom Petty or the Beatles, like I did, they worshiped Bob Dylan and all those other music entities all said like Rolling Stone, number one song of the 20th century. And I'm no music expert. So if Rolling Stone says this is the best music gets, and if Tom Petty and the Beatles say, you know, we want to be more like Bob Dylan or not. we wish our music was as great as Bob Dylan. It's like, okay, who am I to argue with that? Clearly Bob Dylan's where it's at. And I, yeah, my search was over once I discovered his music. Yeah, and I think one of the things as I look back at 
my own uh, journey uh, in my own life. And then obviously Bob being a big part of that. I, I feel fortunate to be born when I was um, pre-internet, but young enough when the internet came out to really appreciate what it was without really taking for granted everything that it replaced. Um, so finding something you like and not just being able to pull your phone up and learn everything that's ever been written about that person. There's something special about the search, the hunt for information. And he's such a deep ocean uh, as well. So every trip to a Sam Goody store or a music store and like, what is this album? Knocked out, loaded. This one must be awesome. Or down in the groove or new morning. I mean, there was no framework, no context, no discography on Wikipedia to say, oh, yes, this was the 13th album. It just seems so gloriously random that every time you go in the store, there was a new Dylan album that you could buy and listen to. And it was a a crapshoot. We didn't know what kind of voice it was going to be. You didn't know what kind of style of music. You didn't know what uh, the songs were going to be about. And I, I just love that. And I just jumped in with both feet. And I read every book that I could find on him at the time at the at the libraries that uh, were at my disposal and uh, listened to as much music as I could. And then later, you know, when the internet came out and Rec Music Dylan, um, I found that and started uh, getting into tape trading and it really kind of opened things up for me in terms of, uh, you know, deepening the ocean, if you will. Yeah. You really pre-internet, you couldn't go in with that many preconceived notions. It was just like, you either like this or you don't. And if you liked greatest hits one, then like you said, maybe three months later, you'd go to Southern Hills mall and go to Sam yep. Goody <laughs> and you'd pick up greatest hits two, And then you would just live with that album for Two, yeah. three months until the next trip to the mall. Yeah, and yeah exactly. it was a totally different, like it was like a slow burn. And yeah, mm -hmm. for me, again, a cultural isolation, I didn't have a lot of other media to consume. So it was like, I sit by my CD player and I listen to this one CD for a month and just, mm -hmm. you know, immerse myself in it and then go discover the next thing and just find out how different and varied everything he did was. Um, so you talked about getting tapes and stuff. You told me that your first concert was in Sioux city in 1994. Mm -hmm. And I'm very jealous because I was only 30 miles away at the time, but you I were was a little only, too young. I was only 10 and nobody <laughs> told me that you could go see Bob Dylan live. So I wasn't there, but any show that's been that close since then, then I have gotten to, uh, so how much exposure did you have to what Bob would sound like live in 1994 when you actually went and going in, was it something you were excited about or were you kind of just going for something to do by that point? Well, I was really excited. So I had not heard anything live. I think maybe, I don't think I had any of the live CDs at the time. So I think I was still in the um, mode of fulfilling my Columbia House subscription and trying to collect the uh, standard albums. And I heard a jingle on the radio that, you know, it was an evening with Bob Dylan and they had him playing Mr. Tambourine Man snippets and then the Joker Man uh, chorus and coming to the Sioux City Auditorium, Memorial Auditorium. And it was like, wow, you know, I told my buddy Sam, I'm like, we got to go to this thing and see it. And he's like, yeah, let's do it. And I, I went, I was very excited to go. No idea of what to expect. Uh, I was probably still thinking, yeah, he's going to sound just, um, you know, like the songs do on the CDs a little bit, but I'd also heard him vary from CD to CD. So I, it, I wasn't completely shocked or, um, you know, disappointed at all. I thought, uh, I thought the music was great and, um, you know, 
any any concert when you're that age is is fantastic but he, he came out and you know he starts out with joker man which is one of my favorites you know at the time i'm just like oh yeah i'm sure he's gonna play all my favorites you know i realize now like wow i was pretty fortunate to hear joker man as my first live bob dylan song and um you know it, it was a really special night i just i remember sitting there and it was the um tour where he was finishing most of his songs with about a 10 minute solo uh, and there are musical um, uh, prelude or conclusion to the to the song i'm not using the right musical terms but you'd go through the verses and then they would just jam for a while uh, about you know an extra five or ten minutes per song so um, right that it's was, all over now baby blue would be nine minutes or something exactly yeah and um you know it was it was a good band it was bucky baxter and tony garnet and uh jj jackson and winston watson uh was the drummer so it was it was a good lineup um i think you know when i look back at the net i think 94 was really when he started to turn it on and the net really became you know that ascension to its peak, you know, I don't know whatever people consider his peak to be, but definitely it was a rising action from 94 to 2002. And I, I, I think those were the shows that uh, it really, really got good. Yes, I definitely agree. I'm very envious that you were around to see those shows because I went to my first show in 2000 and now looking back, able to go and listen to all the bootlegs from those eras to me, 94, like you said, is when he really picked up steam. And if I could go back in time and go to any tour, it wouldn't be live 66. It wouldn't be rolling thunder. It would be probably 1995 and it would be Prague in spring of 95, or it would Mm be uh, the Paradise Lost Tour in the fall. Uh, Last week, somebody posted a link to, I think, Philadelphia from 95 when Patti Smith came out and played Dark Eyes. And they, they posted like a full hour of one of those shows from up close. And he was so in command. He was playing guitar every single, uh, song and he was playing a really uh, a lot of varied set lists and stuff and really Mm -hmm. using up his whole catalog and his voice was great and the band was great and yeah i 95 is my absolute favorite year of the never-ending tour so very jealous that you were uh around to see that era for that yeah and it was interesting because i I as, I'm assuming most Dylan fans at the time fell into the same pattern I did where you wake up in the morning and you check out expectingrain.com to see what's going on in the Dylan world. And then you would click on the Bob links uh, link to see what the set list from the previous night was. And uh, back when, uh, you know, Bill could put up the cue sheet for the alternates, you check out and see what else he was going to play. Uh, you know, it was before the cell phones, before people would kind of live update the uh the songs as they were coming um and you just see every morning and say oh what was new and it did it varied other than a, a watchtower and a slot three um which was always a staple of the net of the net in those years um he did mix it up night to night tonight and it was great so anyone listening to this will hear us and know that we're clearly two very big <laughs> bob dylan fans um i'll address the elephant in the room in in that a lot of people think, oh, Bob Dylan's hit or miss live. He's inconsistent. So let me just run my theory past you here and then tell me what you think about this. Okay. So to me, concerts have become mostly a nostalgia industry and not really a live music industry. And basically it, the result is that there's two kinds of people. There's concert people and there's live music people and concert people go to hear familiar things, have a beer, listen to the stage banter and sing along 
uh, like an Eagles concert or a John Prine concert. I love John Prine, but Mm -hmm. you can tell he's there to give the audience exactly what they want and not challenge them. He knows what songs they want to hear. He wants it to sound as much as it as like 1972 as he can. (laughs) And Bob doesn't do that. He doesn't play that game. He's from the 1950s old school where he plays the live music for the audience and the audience is there to see the music performed and it's his job to perform it and engage the audience through the music and not through building some kind of a fake rapport with them or giving them exactly what they want. So a lot of people that go to see the Eagles and have their beer and sing along when they go see Bob Dylan, they don't get to have that. And so for them, it's like a non-starter and a concert not being what they expect automatically means that they didn't like it. They didn't have a good time. So clearly you were a big enough fan that that's not, that wasn't your takeaway when you saw him in 1994. No, uh, not at all. I, I really enjoyed the fact that he would mix up the phrasing in the songs and you just, you just get hit sometimes. It's like when you're driving in a car and you kind of go over that little bump or that bridge, and then your stomach lifts up a little bit. There's times in his concerts where he hits a phrase in a little different way than you were expecting. And you just get that full body chill and that smile builds up on your face. And and you never know when it's coming. It could come at any moment. And I, I just, I love that whole experience about it. And I wouldn't trade that for just a rehashing of what it sounds like on the CD. Um, that's uh, that's um, one of the other things I was going to say about those mid 90s shows is that the shows are great now, but he's gotten into the static set list and he also sings the songs kind of the same night to night and he's much older mm-hmm. now. So it's probably easier for her to, yep. him to stay on track with the lyrics and everything if he's not getting all crazy with the phrasing. But yeah. in those 90s shows, it was I still like if we're listening to a bootleg. I'll just like pause it and be like, Jen, come here. You got to hear the way he sings this line. And it's like, yeah. it's either funny or beautiful or hilarious. Like it's, it's always uh, surprising to hear what he comes up with and yeah, the way it's different. I totally love that from the beginning. Yeah. I think, I think what really cemented that feeling for me was actually a bootleg CD I bought in Iowa city. Um, there was an old shop down there in the ped mall. I think it's long gone. Um, but I went in there um, to buy guitars kissing in the contemporary fix when that came out, it was before the bootleg series four and five uh, came out with the, um, with the 66 live. And I think what it, the rumor was that they had mixed it, Bob didn't like the mix, but then uh, that mix leaked out as guitars kissing in the contemporary fix. So I went out to get that and I bought that. And then, you know, you get all these random bootleg titles that are out there. You have no idea what the quality is going to be or, uh, so you just look at the back, you look at the songs. And I picked one up from 1992. That was a San Jose revisited CD. And, you know, Drifters Escape most of the time, Idiot Wind, which is one of my favorite songs. And I, I love the 92 shows. It might be my favorite year of the net, um, just because of the phrasing and how he mixed it up uh, each and every song. A Little Moses was on there as well, a great song. And I, I listened to that CD, and it's just a, a, a masterworks in, in phrasing and holding the audience in suspense uh, from song to song. And and I just remember, it's one of my favorite Boots CDs, and, I, and that really kind of opened up the possibilities to me that any live show that he does is worth examining because you could have moments like this. And, and really, I can't remember a single concert I've gone to 
where I didn't have that feeling of just like, wow, he really turned that phrase or he really changed that up and, and made the whole admission price worth it right there. Absolutely. Um, so did you get to see him pretty soon right away? I remember after my first show, the feeling was like, the, the exact same. I loved all those aspects of the live performance. And I just felt like I got to see his show again as soon as possible. So did you get to see him again pretty soon? Yeah. So right after in Sioux City, um, you know, then I graduated, went to college and that fall. Then I came up to Minneapolis to the Target Center. Um, I think it was October 24th. And um, um, the Target Center is not a great acoustic venue at the time, but, um, you know, I came up with somebody. I was still in my phase of it's my duty in life to convert everybody into a Bob Dylan disciple. Yeah, um, yeah we so, all have that. <laughs> we do. So I thankfully have gotten over that. But, um, you know, I took, um, you know, a good friend of mine who's, who's now my brother-in-law up to the show with me. And he and I um, watched it and we just had a great time. And it was just, again, we didn't, didn't have very good seats, but, um, you know, it was, it was a great show again. Saw some good songs. If you see or say hello, drifters escape, um, you know, just, you know, God knows it just, I, I love checking off different songs, uh, live, you know, I had the dreams at one point of seeing every song he's ever done live, but I've kind of given up on, <laughs> on that dream, but it was just another great show. And then every time he would come by either Iowa or, um, or um, Minneapolis, I'd, I'd hit the shows. And then I moved to Chicago after I graduated. And then it was kind of a different thing Then it was, well, every, he was in Illinois quite a bit. So I, I took in a lot of shows there. Yeah. I've been to most of the Iowa, Minnesota and Illinois shows since mm -hmm. 2000. So we've probably been at a lot of the same ones. Probably have been. Yeah. Uh, so you told me in 1996 in Davenport, Bob made yeah. eye contact with you. Can you tell me more about that experience? I can. So it was, it's my best concert moment. Um, I, I finally got good seats. Um, and it was, for me, it was um, a step because I'd already seen him a few weeks earlier. And uh, then a friend of mine said, well, you know, he's playing. And we, I think we went to Mankato. Uh, and then the week later he was in Davenport and I'm like, well, you know, I just saw him, but you know, maybe I could go see him again because it was so good. And so I, you know, I was feeling a little bit like, you know, am I developing a, a bad habit here? Just am I going to be, you know, quitting everything and traveling with him, which in hindsight I should have done, but I didn't. Um, but yeah, we had good seats and uh, he starts in Shelter from the Storm, which is another great song. Um, and, uh, you know, one I'd not heard before. So I was just staring at him the whole time. And then, yeah, he came uh, in a little hilltop village and he just looked right at me and just sang the line. And it, it did just freeze me. And I just remember just, I don't know, like a tractor beam or something. I was just sitting there and singing. And then he just, you know, breaks eye contact and probably looked at somebody else and gave them the same effect. Um, and what, what I remember about it was revisiting that feeling then when he accepted his Grammy Award. And he was talking about seeing Buddy Holly um, up in the uh, Duluth uh, Armory and uh, Buddy Holly making eye contact with him, you know, and he, and he goes on to say he wasn't sure like if Buddy Holly's spirit was there with him when they're making time out of mind. But I just thought that was kind of an interesting, you know, kind of a closing of the circle for me. I mean, it's something that I could share with him, something that he himself felt with one of his idols and appreciated. And, it, you know, it just, it made me feel good to know that, uh, you know, 
for him, you know, he felt that as a kid when he was my age and then he grew up, fulfilled his dream. And now he's inspiring other people and doing that. So who knows, maybe someday I'll find out that, uh, that I looked at somebody and it made a difference in their world too. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, I've had that same thought when the few, the few times that Bob's interacted with me on the rail that he probably wouldn't come out and say it that he realizes that there's that special connection between the performer and the audience. But you know that, you know, deep down, he experienced that a long time ago and Mm -hmm. that he knows what it means to people when he, you know, just looks up from underneath his cowboy hat for just a second and looks at somebody that it's like, it's a mind blowing experience when that happens. Uh, And you've taken it a step farther, right? I mean, you've actually gotten a high five and shared an orange soda with him. Oh, yeah, yeah. Unbeknownst unbeknownst to him. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, when I was in high school, he gave me a high five from the stage. And yeah, I I forgot that I ever told that story. So it's weird that you know about it. But yeah. So his stage hand one time at the end of a show gave me his glass of orange drink that was on his little stand next to uh, his keyboard. And he let me have the orange drink. So I just downed it. Actually, a cop was approaching me because it was at a college show. And he just assumed I was a college kid. And he assumed that for some reason, Bob was drinking alcohol. So he was like, hey, kid, give me that. Give me that. And as the cop was approaching me, I was so feeling the uh, like unstoppable Bob spirit that even though the cop was walking toward me, telling me not to drink Bob's drink, I just drank it anyway. And then I showed the cop like, look, there's orange juice in the bottom of this. It's okay. Uh, And then I've had a couple others. We threw candy to him one time on Halloween and he said, look at all this stuff. Uh, So that wasn't directly towards me. And then there was another time we'd seen a few shows in a row and he played Thunder on the Mountain every single show. This is like 2012 or so. And he had the same spot in the instrumental break during Thunder on the Mountain where he'd plunk the keyboard and give like a a look straight sideways right at the crowd, right on this exact same spot in the song. So we knew, oh, this is going to be the part where Bob does his little piano solo or keyboard solo and then looks out towards us. And we were right on the rail. So as soon as Bob did this with his hands and did the jazz hands, I did it exactly right back at him. And he looked at me right as he did it. And right as I did it at the exact same time. And he just like looked at me and then chuckled like, oh man, you're pathetic. Like you're like mimicking my stage moves and you like have them memorize when I'm going to do them. Uh, and then the other one in St. Paul in 2013, I, I don't know if you were probably at this show. It was the outdoor one last one at Midway Stadium. Mm-hmm. And it was during hard rain and you can hear it on the recording where he sings, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard. And listening to all the bootlegs, I know that sometimes he says, yeah, it's a hard, yeah, it's a hard. And yeah. he, had, he hadn't the entire song, but <laughs> once he paused after one of the it's a hards, I did a very blatant and distinctive, yeah. <laughs> and you can hear that he clearly heard my yeah from the rail because they immediately went, yeah like right back at me <laughs> like you're stealing my thunder kid <laughs> yeah but like it was it was so clearly That's mimicked awesome. so yeah that was pretty cool um all right switching gears a little bit though uh we talked a little bit uh on pod dylan you chose to talk about handy dandy and that's also one of the one of my personal favorite songs. And in addition to just being a really lyrically interesting song, it's also just a fun song. And I think Bob's got so many uh, lyrically dense songs and important songs that sometimes it gets lost in the shuffle a little bit that really, like we were talking about, he's an entertainer and he's, uh, 
he has fun on the stage and he's not just like this dour, serious guy. Like it, it's easy to see why he has that reputation because he's, he wrote blown in the wind and he wrote masters of war, but he really also has a lot of just fun and joyful music in his catalog. Uh, so having picked handy dandy, do you think that was kind of an underappreciated aspect of his music? Oh yeah. I think he's very ornery, you know, and I like that aspect of him, you know, and I think, you know, there's still a lot of little boy in Bob Dylan and, and thank God for that. You know, and, you know, for all of us growing up to be men, you know, you want to keep a little bit of that little boy in you, um, and have people that can appreciate it, but it's, you know, it's a funny song. The phrasing's amazing on it. And yeah, I really, I do naturally and, you know, appreciate the depth and the poetry and, you know, the magnitude of some of his, um, well-known works. And it's very, very well-deserved credit that he gets for those uh, masterpieces. But he also has a lot of lines in a lot of songs that, that they're just hilarious, you know, and then songs that are funny and songs that, uh, you know, aren't meant to be taken seriously, but are meant to be very fun. You know, and I think another way um, you can see that is in some of the songs that he chooses to cover uh, as well. You know, what does he pick out when he wants to play something, you know, maybe that isn't his, but wants to put across a certain mood, you know, like Red Cadillac and Black Mustache, you know, that's that song's hilarious, you know, and he does such a great job with that. And, you know, it's it's not Tambourine Man or, you know, It's All Right, Ma, but it's not supposed to be. You know, it's okay to to uh, mix that up. I think you and I coming from the Midwest, you know, Iowa's not Minnesota and there's some differences to be sure. But, you know, I think we share a lot of Midwestern values and outlooks and mechanisms and and things like that. Uh, and humor is a big part of, of uh, you know, coping in the Midwest. And it's how people, um, you know, communicate and empathize and persevere is through humor. You know, we have all four seasons here. You have to be resilient. You have to be dexterous. And, um, you know, you have to have your eye on the next season that's coming to get through the one you're in. And and Bob Dylan does that. And, and he realizes that humor is one of the ways that people can, you know, communally um, look forward and, and stick together in the present. And, and that comes through in his songs, I think, a lot. Um, you know, there are people from different parts of the world that um, enjoy Bob Dylan's music. I'm sure the thing that comes across most directly is, is the poetics. Um, but, you know, the closer you get to, you know, that Midwestern understanding that you and I were just kind of born with, uh, the more you can appreciate, you know, the subtleness and the, the jabs or the humor in some of the songs, you know, just, um, trying to think of some examples, but his, his silly jokes that he was giving, you know, on the stage in the late nineties and early two thousands about, you know, um, you know, dating a tennis player and running into problems because love means nothing to those people or, you know, having a girlfriend who was so conceited, he used to call her Mimi, you know, that's, you know, that's just great. You know, he, Bob was doing dad jokes before dad jokes became a thing. 
And all the way back, it, uh, I think it probably made those early serious folk protest songs more digestible that for every hard rain's going to fall, there was a talking World War Three blues. And he yeah. had those talking blues songs on all those early records and on bringing it all back home, probably side two of bringing it all back home is his most serious poetic work. And then right before that, he has Bob Dylan's 115th <laughs> yeah. Dream, which is just a completely farcical, nonsensical, just series of funny images and stories. And when they interview his friends over the years, like Louis Kemp's book constantly Mm -hmm. refers to Bob as just having a great sense of humor and just being like a real goofball when he's just being himself. Yeah. Bear Mountain Picnic, you know, is hilarious. Uh, You know, a lot of his early folk songs, you know, his, his ability to create a mood where people are hanging on the next word and then relieve that tension with humor uh, is pretty unique. You know, you don't see that. I can't, I can't, who other, what other musicians are out there right now that you would describe as, you know, humorous in their work, but also at the same time being taken seriously. You, yeah, you, and we have one or the other, like your weird Al Yankovic, right. humorous, but people don't take him seriously. And then yeah. you have someone like Bruce Springsteen, who's taken very seriously, but not really cited for the humor in his songs. So Bob kind of, again, his own. Uh, long and narrow way it's his own path that he's kind of forged and he, he you know he invented his lane i guess no one's ever right. going to ask him to stay in it because he's invented his own lane yeah he does it as only he can do it mm-hmm. uh, yeah we were talking about live the phrasing that he uses and how that that's a hard maybe thing for people that want to hear something that's exactly like on the record uh, the Eagles wouldn't sing Desperado as like an up-tempo like blues thing no. or anything. It's like they're going to play it how they've always played it. Mm-hmm. Um, but Handy Dandy is a perfect example of the fun that Bob can have when he's, you know, loose. And uh, it's it's the kind of approach that nobody else has to their live music, like you said, that I've heard. Uh, I remember I uh, heard Tom Petty. I don't remember if I read this or heard Tom Petty say it, that when he was touring with Bob, Bob was giving him advice and Bob told him that you can fit anything you want into a line and uh, just say what you want to say. And then you can find a way to squeeze it into the meter of the song. Mm -hmm. And handy Danny's a perfect example of that. Yeah, it definitely is. And when I look at the songs that I really like, I like the wordy songs. I, I love it when he just races through a line and then hits something at the end, you know, like foot of pride, idiot wind, uh, handy dandy, just songs where you're like, how's he going to do this? And darn it, he does it every time. And, and actually in some songs, it really creates a dramatic effect where he's really mm-hmm. speeding up the tempo just so that he can have a dramatic pause and then, you know, draw out the last word or whatever. It's very th- theatrical and interesting. Yeah, it, it definitely is. So I think that the people that I've, you know, kind of moved towards listening to the most, uh, have that unique phrasing um, that I really appreciate. You know, they're known for their lyrics as well. So people like uh, Leonard Cohen, Warren Zevon, Lou Reed, you know, I, I love listening to all their music as well. And, you know, they're very distinctive in their phrasing and they, uh, throughout their careers, have mixed up the arrangements and the, and the songs as well. And And it's, you know, Bob just does it so well and so better than anybody else. Um, and it, it allows a person to listen to 
every single recording that he's ever done and never get tired of it. And from an outsider's perspective, I'm sure they're wondering like, how can you listen to the same thing over and over and over? And my response is like, well, I'm not listening to the same thing over and over. I'm listening to something new each and every time. Absolutely. Um, So another thing we have in common is that we're both staunch defenders of Bob's 80s output. Uh, on Pod Dylan, I chose to talk about Dark Eyes and Ring Them Bells. And on Twitter, I once stated that my most controversial music opinion is that Dylan wrote the 10 best songs of the 1980s. So I, you know where I stand. Uh, what draws you to that period uh, of his work in particular? Yeah, I, you know, I'm not sure exactly what it is, but, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't listen to Bob during the 80s. And when I first started listening to Bob, I listened to everything. So it wasn't like I just picked the 80s because that's when I grew up. But as I've gotten older and look back, uh, I really, really think the songs themselves are so well written. Um, when the night comes falling from the sky, the the uh, the poetry of that song is just amazing. You know, and, and people have a really tough time, I think, when I read different uh, message boards or different discussions about Bob Dylan's work and and not just Bob Dylan's work, but uh, the work of other artists like Bruce Springsteen as well. I'll see things like that terrible 80s production or that awful 80s drum sound or the synthesizer. And, and perhaps it's because I grew up in that. I don't hate that effect as much as other people who grew up in the 60s or 70s. I mean, to me, the uh, the disco sounds of the 70s is as distinctive as the sound of the 80s with the synthesizer. Um, so perhaps that's uh, something I'm able to get through uh, better than others. But when I look back at the songs, uh, I think I think the songs are fantastic. But maybe the other thing that I'm really attracted to is that he left a lot of the best songs off of his 80 albums. And when I was reading Behind the Shades by Clinton Halen, you know, I just had the official output at the time. He's talking about all these great songs from bootlegs he's listened to that didn't show up. Um, And I think what really, you know, another milestone in my fandom was when the bootleg series one through three came out and I heard some of these things. Uh, Foot of Pride just blew me away. I mean, it's it, it's got to be in my top, it's in my top five, if not probably my second favorite song. But I just think that song is unbelievable. You know, and he left that off an album. Blind Willie McTell, uh, you know, didn't make an album. So you said the top 10 songs of the 80s uh, out of anybody were by Bob Dylan. I'd almost one up you. And I would say that it's his least recognized decade. And I would say if I could pick 10 songs he left off of his albums, I could put together a greatest hits compilation that would blow away any other artist's greatest hits compilation. And I would be able to defend that and die on that hill. But you're talking about uh, Caribbean wind and uh, foot of pride, uh, blind Willie McTell. Um, you know, I mean, you look at like new Danville girl was left off originally. I know it showed up later, but you know, born in time from the old mercy sessions uh, in that version, I think is just a masterpiece. Um, I, I think he, I think he was at his peak then in terms of mastery of his songwriting. If you look at Joker, man, that is definitely a song. It's probably in my mind, second to Mr. Tambourine man in terms of Bob Dylan songs that you could, um, look at on paper and say, this is, um, you know, an award-winning poem. Uh, it's poetic. 
the structure of the song, you know, the rhyme scheme, um, the meter. It's just amazing, you know, regardless of the, the vocal performance that he gives, which is amazing. If you just look at it on paper, that that's not something that you see uh, anywhere in the music world. And, you know, I'm not the most well-read uh, person in the poetry world, but I think you'd probably be challenged to find a lot of poets who could sit down and write something like that, you know. And and so he he's, he's he was really hitting it all strides. I don't mind the production on some of the songs, but um, just the post-apocalyptic coming out of the, you know, the 70s religious um, period where he was very direct with his faith. And there's a little more ambiguity in terms of what's going on. Um, is the faith still there? Uh, is there uh, discouragement with organized religion versus his faith? You know, I had an interview later where we talked about religion. Um, uh, I can't remember exactly what he was saying. But I think it was uh, um, challenges the dignity of faith when you uh, talk about religion. And, you know, so he makes a, a very clear distinction between the two, and he kind of has that separation with organized religion. So you've got all that stuff going there, whatever in his personal life was going on. Um, you know, I look at my uh, age right now, you know, I'm in my mid 40s, which is where Bob was in the 80s. So again, trying to relate to what was going on in his mind, you know, he's um, not heralded as much as he was, you know, he still thinks he's got it. He's writing great songs on paper. He's frustrated because the sound of these songs isn't resonating with the music um, industry at the time. He's reaching out for help from people who are quote unquote, the, the experts in the 80 sound. I'm sure he's not liking the results. He's getting, you know, worse reviews than he's had in the past. You know, and he's, and he's struggling with the stuff that, you know, normal middle-aged men deal with. You know, he's maybe no longer at the top. Maybe he's on the, on the way down. And that's a struggle for, for all of us, you know, and he's no um, different in that regard. But he's still putting out what he thinks are good songs, frustrated with getting them across the way he was, you know, trying to mix it up. Should I have the female backup singers? Should I get a big rock and roll band to back me? You know, Tom Petty, Grateful Dead, um, you know, try tour with, you know, Mick Taylor and uh, Steve Ripley, go to Europe. And, you know, I'm not, I, I'll even bring Joan Baez back on to see if we can rekindle some of the, the magic from the 60s. So he's still experimenting, still wanting it. And so I, you know, I relate to some of the things that he was personally going through at the time and just am amazed at the songs that that he created. I, I don't think that anybody else, when you look back at the 80s, was writing songs like that. And Bruce Springsteen, you know, mentioned that in the in the Hall of Fame induction speech. He's like, if somebody else were writing Sweetheart Like You, we'd be calling him the new Dylan. But right. unfortunately for Bob, he's always got the biggest yardstick to compare. As to, great as is... you are, man, you'll never be greater than yourself. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. He's He's got that uh, albatross of those 60s and 70s albums that everybody compares him to. Yeah, and he's got to battle that public perception that he uh, disappeared into a haze of substance abuse <laughs> or whatever. Uh, he, he just had a big hill to climb commercially. And I think that's kind of what makes me interested in the 80s perception too, is that it's kind of like the 90s live perception in that way and that the people that like it like it but it he just doesn't quite fit the mold of what people are expecting he's you know he's not into music videos so much and yeah 
that he's, he doesn't have the polish of a 1980s act. And he's, it's the kind of the first generation of like rock legends in their forties and people don't really know what to do with them. So, I mean, I think looking back almost every major act that from the sixties had that transitional problem in the eighties, but I think mostly it was perception and execution, but he, the genius of the songwriting, I don't think diminished at all. No. And you mentioned earlier about different types of performers. So when, when Dylan came up, you know, people weren't making a living off of their recorded music as much, you know, they really made a lot of their money through tours. So it was just the nature of the industry and they were working musicians. You know, if you look at some of the old photos, you're like, why is Bob in 1966 playing in what looks like a high school auditorium? And the answer is that that's where the work was. You know, that was his job. He couldn't just cut a song, sit back, have all the royalties come in or all the sponsorships, all the social media stuff today. And it's interesting, the music industry kind of flipped between, you know, making money on tours and all of a sudden, um, artists were able just to create these blockbuster albums, maybe support it with a small tour, but they made enough money from these album sales and contract deals that they really didn't have to tour. And there was a lesser degree of instrumentation on some of these records as the technology started to change music. So people didn't have to really live as a working musician. They could be recording artists and make their living. Well, then when Napster came along, and they started cutting out, um, you know, the sales of things in Spotify. And now you get David Crosby complaining about the low royalty rates um, for songs on Spotify. You know, it's the working musicians like Bob Dylan, like Bruce Springsteen, who, who've been able to go through all of those different things. And they never did it for money. You know, they did it because they loved the music, um, but they were never afraid of the work of being a working musician. And so Bob did that in the 60s. You know, he did it in the 70s. He kept working in the 80s, in the 90s. Didn't matter to him, you know, if the money was coming in through um, gate receipts or through record sales or whatever. He sees himself as a working musician, and I, I think that's incredibly inspiring because he's, he's really at the pinnacle. He could think highly of himself um, to his own detriment, but I think he is pretty humble. I think he's proud of himself, and he knows that he's good, but I also think that he has some of that Midwestern humility and uh, understands that he's a working musician, and he's there to, uh, you know, to make a living every night. Right. He goes out and does his job. He does. He does. So last week, Isis Magazine reported that the next bootleg series would cover the Infidel sessions. Uh, you also attended the world of Bob Dylan in Tulsa. And during that trip, you spoke with some of the guys uh, who were heavily uh, involved in researching those collections. Uh, what did you learn about the Infidel sessions when you were in Tulsa? And what do you expect uh, from the next bootleg series? Well, I was very excited because I think the Infidel songs are my favorite songs that uh, Bob Dylan's done. Um, if you look at all the songs that were left off, um, I, I think that's his best collection of songs or had the potential to be the best album uh, if sequenced correctly. Um, I say correctly, but uh, how I would sequence it. Um, we went down there and the way it was set up was they had uh, at each time slot three or four different uh, presentations. So you'd have to go through and see which ones you wanted to hit, which was excruciating because you wanted to see all of them. Uh, but I saw a gentleman named Terry Gans was presenting on Foot of Pride. 
you know, in the descriptions, like, you know, Terry's on research has heard all 43 takes. So I'm like, well, I'm, I'm going to this one. Yeah, that's you the know. one I would have gone to. <laughs> and he went up there and he, he talked about it and he, uh, he wrote an article, um, in 1983, uh, for one of the early Dylan fanzines about the song. And he said, it, you know, it's never left his mind in terms of what's going on and trying to figure out, you know, exactly, um, all the details of the song and why it was left off the album and he gave a really wonderful presentation just talking about you know the background of the funeral that's going on and the different reasons why um lyrics changed over times he talked about you know the different versions the different drafts of of lyrics the different um frustrations trying to record the song um you know and it reminded uh, his description reminded me of uh listening to the she's your lover now sessions which is another one of my favorite songs uh that bob recorded and then didn't release uh because he just couldn't nail down the the tune and the and the uh, band had trouble trouble following him so i i went up to him afterwards and was just chatting with him um, and chatting with Michael Chaikin, who was the, uh, the curator of the museum and just told Terry, I said, really enjoyed your presentation. And, uh, we started talking and then, um, Michael, um, mentioned that Terry had found the manuscript for the I'm cold lyrics while he was doing his research for infidels. So I was like, well, I, I'm, I'm sitting next to the guy that kind of, you know, found the map to the Holy grail, so to speak. And I, I just thought that was kind of interesting. And he and I just chatted about this, the sessions and, you know, I'd said something, I said, I think these are my favorite songs. And he's like, yeah, these are my favorite songs too. You know, and he said, there was a lot of writings that Bob had done, uh, not just song lyrics, but he said uh, just a lot of brain dump type things that he was, um, you know, after the, after the divorce and the I'm cold period, just a lot of, you know, thoughts committed to paper and, uh, uh, different writings that he got to review. So that was, that was really interesting. It felt like he really dug into some of the, um, you know, different working manuscripts had a better feel for you know, how Bob puts a song together and, and the editing. I think that's become uh, more appreciated now in the last couple of years, you know, just how much Bob has worked and reworked the lyrics and how, hardworking he is trying to get the song just right. And, you know, so Terry, Terry really said that, you know, he's hopeful at the time he said, he's hopeful uh, a session of the bootleg series will come out to cover infidels. And I asked him, I said, is it going to be like the big blue box where they give us every note? And he's like, no, it's probably going to need to be curated. Uh, There's just too many materials, but I do think that they found more reels of music after he, had done his presentation. So I'm not sure on the timing of his book. Um, he had mentioned the book was coming out. I don't, I don't believe it was finished, um, but I don't know if he had listened to all the new reels they'd found by the time um, he submitted the book to be published. So there's always hope that uh, there's some new gems in there that even Terry hasn't seen or heard and we can get a surprise on the next bootleg series, but I'm definitely looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. I hope we, I can, uh, get Terry on the show too, at some point before this bootleg series comes out, uh, you and mentioned the I'm cold, uh, performance, um, one of the big mysterious, uh, entities of the Bob Dylan catalog is I'm cold. Um, from what I've read about it, it's kind of a continuation of blood on the tracks, but without the love is what I've read, <laughs> but it's, uh, very bitter. And I, one of my, probably my favorite album that I listen to the most is street legal. And I think sometimes 
uh, when Bob's life is in disarray, that kind of inspires him to create some of his best work. So I would be very interested to see uh, if I'm cold is a continuation of blood on the tracks, but maybe with the vitriol of the mm-hmm. hard rain, idiot wind or something. So it's, it's fun to imagine uh, kind of do the thought experiment of jumbling all those different things together and imagining uh, what kind of uh, song I'm cold could turn out to be. Yeah. I think the, the world of Bob Dylan and the you know Institute down in Tulsa is really going to be amazing for people like us. Uh, definitely the scholars um, that will have access, uh, be able to write new books, write new articles, um, but also just the uh, different recordings they have down there that people don't even know about. Um, it's going to be interesting. When I was talking with um, the curator, um, we were, I, I asked him a bunch of questions. I'm sure I annoyed him, but I was like, so is it true that the 78 soundboards were really, were all erased? And he's like, no, we've got plenty of those. So I'm like, good. And I'm cold. Okay. We've got that verified that that exists. And he, and then he kind of offhandedly said, you know, what's one of the weirdest things is that Bob's got all these recordings of 80 songs that he's covered. Like he just turned on the cassette recorder, hit, play and record and then just covered Madonna or whatever was on pop radio. And I'm just like, wow. I mean, that that's, if you grew up in the eighties and you pick some of these songs, I mean, it does Bob have, you know, in the interview with Kurt Loder, he talked about, uh, or they mentioned the, the comic karma chameleon cover that Bob was doing on the acoustic guitar. And, you know, you just wonder, does he have, you know, some in excess songs or, <laughs> you know, take on me or, um, whatever from the eighties, like a virgin, maybe there's recordings of Bob just strumming along and recording all those, but he, he kept them all and he turned them over. So those are sitting in there. Lost eighties classics. <laughs> Bootleg series, volume 45. Bob That's probably going to be a hits of the eighties. <laughs> probably going to be a later, later edition. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a lot of people have interests that they don't necessarily go out of their way to share with other people. Uh, go on podcasts and whatnot. Um, my wife is kind of like that. She loves Bob Dylan, but she's very hesitant to go on the internet and talk to people Mm -hmm. about it. It's just something, it's a personal thing that she likes to, to listen to. And that's as far as it goes. I'm not one of those people when I'm passionate about something, I want to share it. And I want to, uh, uh, I, I transform from an introvert to an extrovert when I get excited about a topic. Um, so you went to Tulsa for the world of Bob Dylan. You reached out to Rob and went on Pod Dylan, and you're talking to me. Um, so what do you think it is uh, about you that makes you want to share your passion for things with other people? Does does Bob Dylan, is that the thing that does that for you like it is for me? Yeah, it's definitely one of the things I could talk about uh, forever. Uh, and like I said, I, like every Bob Dylan fan, we've gone through that stage where we feel like we've found the keys to heaven and we want everybody to come along with us. And you just sadly realize that, uh, you know, not everybody is along for the ride. So I've had my shares of uh, annoyed friends in the past that, uh, you know, I've been tired of listening to the same Bob Dylan song. But so I've learned to kind of seek out the people who are a little more open and maybe not bludgeon them right away with, uh, you know, 20 CDs worth of songs that I've personally curated for them to listen to and just kind of have it on in the background and listen to different things. And, Oh, so you're interested in that. I've got a son that uh, I caught him one time singing the chorus, the tombstone blues. I was like, Oh, you like that one? He's like, yeah, it's okay. 
you know, <laughs> another one that likes must be Santa. And, you know, my wife really likes spirit on the water. That's her favorite song. And, you know, she told me one time, she's like, boy, that Nashville skyline, that just plays really well, like all the way through. It's very listenable and enjoyable. And she's thought the same thing with together through life. And, you know, just it, there's so much of it uh, that I think there's some Bob Dylan songs and music that everybody likes and appreciates. I just happen to be one of the lucky ones who likes it all. Me too. Me too. It's a, it's a unique thing to be able to share with people. I always feel like this very strong bond, like, well, with my wife who I met standing in line waiting for a show is Mm -hmm. there's this certain common ground you have with anyone who really goes deep into Bob Dylan. It's a lot different than, you know, making conversation about the, the latest twins game or something like a lot yeah. of people have a very surface level conversational ability to talk about the local sports team. But it seems like when somebody shares, uh, you know, a really strong passion for Bob Dylan, there's a certain bond there that I've experienced over the years. And I just have so many friends that I've made only because I just love talking about Bob Dylan and there's so much to talk about in his music. Um, so I guess that's, that's why I have a podcast that focuses on Bob Dylan fans and not just, you know, analyzing the lyrics to gates of Eden or something. Um, so that kind of leads to my last question for you, which is, I, I guess, how would you describe what it is about the music? We've talked some about, you know, the phrasing and that sort of thing, but why do you think it is that Bob Dylan speaks to you um, more than any other musician does? And what has it meant to you personally in your life, as far as like making your life better? I, th- I think it's intractable from my life when I look back uh, ever since I started listening to him. Uh, it's just always been with me. I listen to his music every day. Um, you know, when I'm not listening to it out loud, I'm listening to it in my head. Um, the variety, I think, is incredible. Uh, you know, his recent song, I Contain Multitudes, I, I, that's so true. I mean, he's such a, a varied person. Um you know, country music. I love country music. I love rock and roll. Um, you know, I love the singer songwriter ethos. Um, I love the poetic aspect of it, you know, but he's also somebody who's lived during a very interesting time. You know, he was part of the sixties. Um, I mean, a big part of the sixties, you know, and he was, you know, present throughout all these other, um, times in our life. And you look back, he was overlaying those historical events with very poignant commentary through his songs, a lot of times three to five years in advance of the events. And I just think that's incredible. And what I've really come to appreciate over time as I've gotten older and more mature uh, is, is just how good he is at taking in all of the external stimulus and influence um, in his environment and through history and accumulating all of this knowledge and bringing it in and reworking it and bringing something back out that is familiar yet completely unique and right on the point. You know, like he said, it doesn't pussyfoot around. It just smacks you right across the face and this is what it is. And he delivers in such an enjoyable way for me um, that it's just incomparable, you know, to anybody else. And it's hard to really understand how someone's capable of doing this, but just, I'm very thankful that he does. And he's been around doing it for so long. Yeah. I call it that Bob Dylan filter, 
Like mm-hmm. he, he, he heard this blues song from the 1930s and then yeah. he had this idea he wanted to convey and he writes the, writes it down and tweaks it and tweaks it and tweaks it as you can hear in the different bootleg series, which I think actually makes it even more impressive. The finished products that he comes up with, because it's not like they're passed down from heaven and they come out his mouth. He sits there and really just chips away and chips away and edits and changes yeah. the line here, changes the line there, changes the tempo, changes the key. And so that, that work ethic to me is very inspiring that he's been, been doing that for 60 years, putting things into the Bob Dylan filter and that new and interesting things have kept coming back out the other side over and over again. Yeah. And I think that's probably the number one thing about him that's most misunderstood by the general public is he's not, you know, moved by divine guidance. You know, these, these, uh, he's not a guru. He's not, uh, you know, a psychic or someone who can predict the future. And it's not drugs that are producing these works. You know, it's just vulgar to think so, as he once said. Um, But really, it's somebody who's just paying attention and curious to the world around him and who cares about it and, and puts it all together. And then on top of that, works really hard at his craft, you know, and that, you know, that's, that's not as sexy as somebody who just shows up and has these mystical powers and is in touch with the cosmos or whatever, like people thought in the sixties and the psychedelia. Um, but it, like you said, it's really more impressive when you think how, how hard it would be to do this. And then he's done this for so long and at such a high level, he really deserves a lot of, uh, you know, appreciation for that. And then that the things that come out of that process have that power to uplift people, to make people think and make people feel, and that that millions of people that he's never met can all relate to them. And he's able to conjure up those feelings mm-hmm. and then just package them so tightly into these three, five, seven minute songs in ways that are just relatable for everybody. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes of his, it it is. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes that he gave was when he said, um, you know, what more can you do for somebody and inspire them? You know, I think that what a great lesson that is uh, as a, you know, a teacher, as a parent, as a friend, uh, just as a, you know, person on the planet, along with everybody else, what more could you possibly do for someone and inspire them and, uh, you know, encourage their own potential to do great things in their own life. And, he, and he's done that for millions of people. And it's just, that's just incredible. All right. Well, Matt, I think that's a, a great place to put a bow on this thing. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. I hope Bob uh, gets back out on the road this fall or next year. And uh, if you see me say hello, we'll be out on the tour. So sounds great. Thanks for having me. And we'll see you at the next show. Absolutely. Uh, you can find Matt on Twitter at Matt, S-I-M-O, and then the number nine. You can find back episodes of this podcast on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Please feel free to share a link of this podcast with your Bob-loving friends all over the world. Once again, thanks for listening, and be sure to join us next time for another episode of The Bobcats. They sang Danny Boy at his funeral and the Lord's Prayer. We should talk about Christ's betrayed. It was like the earth just opened and swallowed him up. He reached too high and was thrown back to the ground. You know what they say about being nice to the right people on the way up. Sooner or later you're gonna meet them coming down. Yeah, there ain't no going back. 
Is there anything in addition to your songs that you want to say to people? Good luck. Good nerve. You don't say that in your songs, anyway. Yes, I do. Every song tails off with good luck. <laughs> I hope you make it. <laughs>